welcome to another World Youth Movement for Democracy podcast. We are now entering the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic, and different countries are dealing with it in different ways, using different preventative measures to try and control the spread of the virus. One country that is particularly interesting to observe in this context is Botswana. Botswana has basically been under lockdown for a whole year. Although this hasn't been a consecutive year, the lockdown has been instilled, lifted, on and off, in varying degrees of strictness. However, it's still a year, and a year is a really long time. And we thought it was really important to observe how such a long lockdown might affect human rights and democracy in Botswana. We are joined today by Dumiso Gacha, board member of the World Youth Movement for Democracy and founder of Success Capital, a queer, feminist, youth-led, youth-serving, and youth-oriented organization working in the outskirts of Botswana's capital, and by Bonolo Magoe, program coordinator at Democracy Works Foundation, an expert debater and one of the founders and organizers of SADC Open, a policy analysis and debating tournament aiming and propagating meaningful dialogue on the state of democracy in the Southern African region. And both of them are African Union Youth Charter Hustlers representatives for Botswana. Thank you both so much for being here today. Seeing how long Botswana has been under lockdown, I just wanted to ask you about if you're okay and how, how you're coping and how you're dealing with the pandemic. Thanks, Namina. I think, you know, um, it's important because, I mean, the COVID crisis has really needed a time of care and compassion and, you know, asking each other on whether we're okay or not. And I think most of the time I find myself saying fine as autopilot um, pre-COVID. But I think um, given the context that we're in, you know, with the initial six-month state of emergency and a year, which now has been extended to a year-long one, um, it's important for us to sort of reflect and ask ourselves, what does it mean within the context of solidarity? What does that mean within the context of some of the challenges that have been illuminated in terms of inequality um, and in terms of, you know, um, uh, uh, being marginalized within the context of uh, COVID precautions and regulations? So I, I would like to say I am managing and navigating um, which I think is good, relatively, given the fact that um, we are living in an era of a pandemic, we're living in an era of um, extreme inequality, we're living in an era of poverty, and um, so I think the only thing that I can really come and conclude to is that um, I'm managing and navigating, uh, which is the only way that um, one can be able to be, uh, whether it's resilient, to survive, or to rest within this context. What about you, Bonolo? How have you been dealing with all of this? Um, you know, I think it's been, first of all, I didn't even think in my lifetime I'll go through a pandemic. And I know maybe it was like short-sightedness from my side, but you know, you read about the plague and when you actually do sort of experience it yourself, it's like an out-of-body experience. I remember when it first happened in, 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 in China and when it like, the increasing infection and even ended in my own country, it was sort of like a weird feeling of denial. But I think ultimately, like Dumi had mentioned, it's like it has sort of shone a light on the level of inequalities within our country. I think coming from Botswana has its benefits, 
particularly if you look at like in comparison to other countries within the African uh, continent. However, I think a lot of us had taken for granted that like despite what we're viewed to be from the outside, there are underlying inequalities within our systems, within our communities that only really, really rooted itself, sorry, like really reflected itself due to this pandemic. Um, but if I was to speak from a personal point of view, like how it's, it affected me as an individual, how it affected me and my ability to do my work, my ability to find value in my work, I think what I really struggled with is that our work is mostly capacity building, meaning you have to host workshops, you have to have meetings. But with the restriction, it made it almost sort of impossible to have those meetings. And when you did virtually, I think we can all agree that it's just not the same. So it had us really questioning whether or not we can still uh, have impact in the work that we do during a pandemic. But most importantly, how do we change how we work in development for us to be adaptive when something like this happens? And these are still questions that to this point, I don't have answers to. I'm surviving. It's hot. John has always been hot. It's like a, you're in a furnace. But other than that, I think <laughs> taking it a day at a time, pretty much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I would like to uh, touch base on those inequalities that you mentioned later. But um, how has civil society adapted? Has it adapted? And what are some of the biggest challenges or how have the restrictions reflected on your work, not only in terms of motivation, but in terms of, you know, logistics? I, I think that, this, first of all, we maybe should have a discussion about the nature of civil society in Botswana and the play, like how this, the already existing constraints that civil society organizations or development workers already had in the country. Because Botswana is considered to be an upper middle class country, we don't really have a robust civil society um, network of institutions that are uh, functioning due to like lack of funding. You know, we're not exactly the country that people think of when the when donors are looking at investing in development work because of how we're financially placed. I have my own opinion about whether this placement is, is correct or accurate, but we can have a conversation about that another time. But there's already a vulnerability that existed within civil society spaces and civil society institutions. So I think it was actually quite crippling when this happened to an already crippled uh, society that's not uh, really properly structurally supported, financially supported. Um, so already getting into the situation, it was almost as if, you know, you're beating a horse that's already struggling. Uh, if you look at the relief uh, that the government was offering to different businesses and the private sector and individuals, I think there's been sort of like a, a lack of consideration of, of civil society institutions. Uh, I don't know if this is on purpose. I'm not going to say that it might be. I don't know. However, like, I mean, for a lot of years now, uh, funding for civil society has, ha has only happened through Bukongo, the Botswana Organization for or NGOs. It's like an umbrella of different NGOs. So they get the funding, they disseminate it, and et cetera, and so forth. Uh, we've had discussions about why this is problematic, but I think it has literally really crippled the civil society institutions and demoralized them. There hasn't really been any showcasing of good faith from government to sort of find a way to capacitate or give some sort of relief 
to organizations, particularly those that are still functioning in communities where there's a higher percentage of vulnerable groups? I don't know, Dumi, what do you think? Um, you know, Bonilla, you framed it really quite well in terms of, you know, the development context and really just putting it, uh, or rather actually highlighting, you know, the, the, the different, I guess, parameters of resourcing. And I think, you know, yes, at an international and regional level, it's really quite reflective of what it is at a domestic level, even more so, because you find that there's a certain level of elitism in terms of who is resourced, who has access in terms of contributing to certain uh, COVID response measures or consultation. And it's important, yes, the, the Botswana Council of NGOs as an umbrella body is critical um, in terms of being included in some of the, you know, consultations with different government ministries, also with um, parliamentary oversight committees where they needed feedback on, you know, the COVID impact, but it doesn't necessarily translate into changing mm -hmm. the reality of CSOs on the ground. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, all CSOs, all unregistered groups, you know, collectives, um, who actually accommodate and try as much as, as possible to mitigate the impacts of COVID or the proportion for the communities they represent. But I must say, because you know, Botswana has always been one of the more prominent countries in terms of high HIV incidences, we have got a great foundation in terms of infrastructure around, let's say, technical working groups, which are multi-stakeholder platforms that engage government and CSOs within the HIV response. And so through support of the Global Fund and through the national agents, the National um, Health AIDS and Health Promotion Agency, there have been some ways in which, for instance, community health organizations were able to ensure critical SRHR services were provided to their communities, that they were able to continue um, medication, you know, for those who needed to continue and so forth, and then that they could align, especially, you know, for people with disabilities, people living with HIV and, you know, LGBT groups. So I think at least uh, in some way there have been pockets of progress, but again, it's elitist. Um, it's also, you know, according to proximity to power. And I guess, you know, more importantly, in terms of answering your question is CSOs had to adapt. They didn't have much of a choice. And I think, you know, more notably, under you know the the three lockdowns that were experienced i think you know that was really a significant challenge as bonola had alluded is that in person contact wasn't necessarily possible i think travel restrictions made it even more cumbersome and difficult in terms of administrative loopholes that cso's needed to jump in order to provide critical services to um the, their clients so i think you know it's been a myriad of complexities and you know as with you know in as much as yes Botswana has been a peaceful country you know a Peace isn't just the absence of war. There's so many other um, systemic and social issues that need to be considered for peace to be a truly equitable and meaningful, um, uh, uh, I guess, development aspiration or even national vision. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that, Dumi. And um, so speaking of the lockdown, you say that there have been three, it has been uh, put in place three times. From what I could find, the first time it happened was in March and that it was um, a presidential basically decision to put it in place for 21 days, after which immediately they put it in place for six months. And then I guess a third time would have been another 21 days, if I'm not mistaken. So why the decision to put it in place for six months immediately? I mean, it seems a little bit extreme, I guess. Or do you think it's... Um, seeing how you said that 
you know, Botswana has good, good organization of, of public health uh, surrounding HIV. Do you think that it was um, a decision that was made according to an estimate that this would be how long we need to control uh, the spread of the virus? Or do you think that really the decision didn't make any sense? Because I'm curious because I haven't seen that many places around the world have had such a long lockdown from the, from the start. There's a narrative um, where people say, you know, if South Africa sneezes, then, you know, we all feel the impact. And so we found in terms of, um, you know, just some of the response measures, you know, many countries obviously um, had some form of state of, you know, public health emergency or otherwise. And obviously ours is um, uh, particularly different because it um, gives the president the ultimate power. You know, parliament is very basically obsolete. I'm not so sure about the judiciary, even though there were some cases um, that were litigated in terms of arbitrary arrest or even issues of you know freedom of expression and so forth but i think um in comparison to some of the other you know sort of uh, legislative instruments that were used or executive orders obviously Botswana's is really quite extreme to be quite honest uh, given the fact that there are legal parameters in which for instance the director of health would be able to still have um stringent measures or precautions in a way that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no oversight and you know the the, the normal government uh, i guess tools for curbing corruption, the normal government tools for decision making wouldn't necessarily be compromised. And so now, you know, we're having a situation where the rationale, one, was really quite highly political, um, you know, not necessarily knowing, you know, why there was a need for such political uh, expediency, why there was a need for such political reach. Um, secondly, you know, given the fact that, you know, there were funds that were mobilized and, you know, even just the promise of food parcels, you know, over, you know, a prolonged, I think was the first lockdown was around 54 days and you only had one a food parcel that was, you know, doled out after an extensive assessment process that was just, um, that, that, that had its own shortcomings. So I think, you know, just aside from the political nature for that state of emergency, there was also a narrative around protection of, protection of jobs and around, you know, the, 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 the need to um, expedite, uh, whether it's procurement of, you know, the PPE or, you know, making sure that you're mobilizing enough contractors or supplies for whatever it is. And so obviously that opens up a window for corruption. Um, it obviously then, I mean, if people are not able to take care of the bottom line, that means that people will be at a loss of jobs or will be further underemployed. And we're talking about a country where 10% uh, of the employed population earns more than a thousand US dollars a month. So, I mean, it, it, it's already speaking about the fact that, you know, it eroded the tax base, eroded um, um, the informal economy, which obviously um, with people being able, unable to sustain their livelihoods, that meant that um, quite a lot of other social indicators were compromised. So I think, you know, to a certain extent, um, from or, or rather actually from a, a legal human rights perspective, I think it, it, it might have actually been uh, a tad bit too, too um, authoritative, if I can put it that way, as opposed to maybe more um, balanced or nuanced ways of regulations, as you have, for instance, um, in South Africa or some of the other countries in the region. I'm not sure, maybe Bernola might have a different no, I completely agree with you, Dumi. You've like brought up a, a, a lot of like valuable points, particularly on like whether or not declaring a state of, uh, like you know, the, how he did it. Like you know, a, a lot of people had the conversation about did we really have to go through this period for this amount of time? And like that doubt built on a lot of people looking at maybe there are ulterior motives to why 
because like Jimmy had mentioned, the, it, it's not like we were in a state where we couldn't say like, for example, the health ministry was unable to do its job. It was just more about like, do we think that it's valuable to give an individual this amount of power for this amount of time? And there was a conversation that was had yesterday because we got another update on the amount of like COVID cases and deaths um, recently yesterday. And a lot of people now have started really doubting the information that it's put out. Uh, a lot of them think that he wants to extend the state of emergency for another probably six months. And it's, it's undeniable that like all of the decisions that have been made internally in our country kind of mirror those that are made in South Africa. We can all see that from a bird's eye view. But I think what's problematic is that like, it seems as though there really isn't any consideration of the impact of what is happening now. Just yesterday, um, we're having a conversation about the impact of, so now they've banned the sale of alcohol and we're not talking about like people consuming it, but you're looking at like service providers, restaurants, people that rely on this. And then the conversation changed to be, do we not feel like the measures that are put in place systematically only disenfranchise a specific um, like income bracket? Because if you travel to some parts of the country for leisure or so forth and so forth, you can still do whatever it is that you want. But it's the people that are living in areas that are either too remote or living in areas of like lower middle class that are still not being considered when these decisions are being made. We had a social inclusion audit uh, workshop with political parties and this conversation came about. Uh, and I think the conversation that we were having is the impact of um, COVID restrictions on the increase in, uh, um, in, in the gender-based violence, particularly within not only the political spaces and structures, but also like in homes. And somebody asked, and like, but what, are the, what is the government doing? Because they did give out parcels in the first um, lockdown, but that sort of phased out. And even then, they were targeting places where if one was to investigate, it wasn't as in need as other places. And either way, every month we're getting all of these reports about they've spent such and such amount of money, and it really doesn't reflect onto the ground that this is what the impact is. And I think this sort of haphazard information that has been given to the citizens have really started to make them doubt that even the impact of COVID is as gruesome as we are told it is. Um, we were supposed to, and we still are actually gonna have a meeting next week with youth. And all of them were like, no, but why do we need to host it there? Because, you know, I don't really think COVID is important. I think he's only saying that it is because he wants to extend the state of emergency. So a lot of people do think that extending the state of emergency and the COVID cases in Botswana, there's a problem solution mismatch. There are other ways that he can mitigate the issue without necessarily putting the whole country at hold. And there hasn't been a substantial consideration about what that actually looks like or translates to on the ground. So that has been extremely worrisome, particularly for our stakeholders that are still remain vulnerable, still remain isolated without having any sort of roadmap or idea of what's gonna happen next. When February ends, right now we are under a curfew. You have to be home by 8 p.m. until February. By February, people are wondering, he's most likely gonna put us on a full lockdown because the amount of like 
deaths have increased, uh, the rate of infection has increased. So a lot of people are now starting to doubt the information, particularly because they doubt his intention of starting or extending the state of emergency to this long. Wow, <laughs> a lot of questions come up uh, when you say all this. I mean, it's such a breeding ground for disinformation and for just complete lack of trust in government institutions. And I can imagine that that would be a contributing factor towards people, I guess, acting less and less according to preventive measures because they no longer believe the, I guess that the virus is all that they say it is. I know that's a huge uh, issue here in Serbia where due to basically the lack of existence of uh, free and independent media. There's only a few portals that are completely considered independent. There's just a complete lack of trust that these are the real numbers, that the vaccines are the actual vaccines. And I know it's been a huge issue because we ordered a large amount of um, Chinese and Russian vaccines. And I'm sure once um, you start ordering vaccines as well, it's going to be something that's going to be a huge conversation in, in uh, society in Botswana. But um, I want to refer back to something that you mentioned, and that is that people living in uh, more rural areas or informal sector workers, um, persons belonging to the LGBTQIA uh, community and women are particularly vulnerable in, in this period. And that also extends to indigenous communities. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on how that has impacted all of these groups that are already marginalized in society. Just off of the basis of the, I think that was just the, the night before the first lockdown, um, just after it was announced. And, you know, the, the final parting was that they had was um, around how one, challenging, you know, in being able to secure a job and secure livelihood. And secondly, also just already being surrounded by their many thoughts and um, having their own mental health issues is a challenge and how they could not imagine continuing a world um, under lockdown. And um, I mean, for us, we had, I think, an average of about three to four hours um, per week where we were speaking to different individuals because they needed some form of support. Um, you found that, you know, young uh, lesbian women who needed uh, to seek shelter and went to one mainstream shelters actually couldn't even stay there because they couldn't be comfortable enough in terms of being able to share um, their true experiences, their feelings, because a counselor who wouldn't understand some of the unique distinct needs that a lesbian would have have wouldn't really be able to assist fully um, and you know I, I think even it, you know what was even more glaring is you know when it then hits home where you know where you have you know a couple of people who um, then would have rather had you know something where they know there's a tad bit of security there wouldn't be you know some form of homelessness or anything like that and you know you have them also having their mental health challenges and you know I you know it, it, it results in a lot of burnout because remember now it's you know you're not just caring for yourself but you're caring for community as well and that doesn't always come or reflect in terms of resourcing at a CSO level. Um, the time in which, you know, people need, for instance, um, at an emergency because it wasn't necessarily safe being home and having to find alternative accommodation and not always having or preempting that you'd need a budget for that, you know, and then also, you know, then finding out, you know, in between, you know, the lockdowns that someone had to endure 40, 54 days of sexual abuse in the north of the country. Um, you know, and knowing full well that the judicial system is uh, not just delayed, but that it isn't accommodating 
for different individuals. Um, and so, you know, you find that it's obviously a significant challenge and I must, you know, commend the media in being able as a part of essential services and securing their relevant permits to actually, you know, highlight a lot of the issues. You know, we had instances where people hadn't received their medicines in the more rural locations. Um, we had instances where people um, who would have to travel a lot since, you know, let's extend um, weighing and, you know, uh, uh, vaccine shots and so forth, um, had to walk because they didn't have the privilege of having a car. And because you uh, travel permit were difficult to secure because you either had to ask a traditional chief or you had to ask a, di a district commission or some other authority. At some point, the regulations kept changing because they'd say, oh, they've only got a quota of 50 per day, you know, given the fact that other people also have to go in their essential services. How does some in a multi-residential property and doesn't necessarily have a fridge, you know, now buy enough, uh, you know, consumables for, you know, a month and a half or for an indefinite period, like how the lockdowns were announced. So, I mean, it's really, it's glaring and it's really unfortunate. Um, and, you know, just one other thing that I must mention, even though, yes, we're now under, you know, relaxed conditions, it's still a problem when you're going through military points and people don't understand what it means to discriminate individuals. So they don't understand what they meant when they took an oath of office and they're rude and they don't know how to actually deal with people who happen to be different. And, you know, when they concern themselves with other issues, aside from checking on whether individuals have travel permits. And I'm saying this because something that happened last week and it's really irritating how you're finding you know in my mind authority authoritarianism reflects itself you know because you take it from the head if the head feels like they can impose certain conditions then you find that the military feel like they're important to speak to people in dignified ways and they wouldn't even understand what it mm. means when you speak about Botswana's constitution and grounds for non-discrimination so i think for me it's really critical um for us to recognize what authoritarianism means um, you know, when they're arbitrary arrests um, against people, you know, sharing, I understand they can be, you know, misleading information and it's important to counter it. But what does it mean when they're arbitrary arrests? What does it mean when you're punitive in approach? And when has that ever worked? When has criminalization of anything ever worked um, in society or in, you know, the aspirations of a democratic society? And I'm yet to discover anything that has been a success in that context. Amazingly put. Um, Bonalo, would you, would you care to share your views on this particular issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and particularly on like access to resources during the restriction, uh, there was a point in time where, because the some people just don't have ex they don't have private cars. So they have to rely on using public transportation. But for social distancing purposes, now one taxi that would normally carry maybe 12 people now have to reduce to almost half of that, if not less. So there was a strike um, and public, uh, the, the drivers of the taxis just were reluctant to, reluctant to take anyone because obviously they don't make as much as money that they used to if they do. So a lot of these workers have to walk like incredible distances to get to work. And, and we've had cases where individuals have been assaulted on the way to work um, and, and, and this was just harmful. But if you did go to the police and my boss and I at one point didn't go um, report on behalf of somebody that we'd worked with before, they just, you know, they were very relaxed about it. They were asking us questions that were mundane and actually borderline just like annoying to say like, but was she walking in the dark? 
um, what time was it? Which neighborhood was it? And I think that what made it more infuriating is that they were not focusing on like the real reason that there was an intentional effort to put this woman in harm by virtue of, you know, taking away her ability to safely go to work and why that was so. So I think most of the time when these decisions are made, there's a, a level of negligence to look at like, who would be affected to the smallest even individual or the smallest even level that could potentially be affected. And we also had instances where in our space, particularly working with, with, with the political parties and the youth leagues, where they were reporting that during the lockdown, they tried to use the existing party structures to report harm that was done upon them in their homes. And those structures failed them. And in most times, the harm was perpetuated by somebody that was known to one of the, the, the party structure members. So for example, uh, there was a lady that was living with an uncle. The uncle was a counselor in such and such a place. And this happened to her. And she tried to um, get this reported through the woman's league. And what she got in response was, a conversation about how this culture, this rape culture, this entitlement culture, this culture of believing that women have to necessarily, or even men, because even we've had instances where young boys have actually been exploited in the same way, that they have to pay in more than one way to get into the political space um, and be successful in it. So when she reported, she was met with, she was stonewalled. For entire, after 54 days, she tried and nothing, they did absolutely nothing. And for me, what was very disappointing is the same people that were expected to vote into power every four years and believe that they have some level of oversight or even some level of empathy or even intelligence to know that no one deserves to live like that. And this is stuff that unfortunately, to this day, even when you confront these individuals about these statistics and these spaces about like, this is what's happening in political party and what are you doing about it? You still have the same narrative from these patriotic men that believe that like women have no space, that believe that gender has no space, that believe that sexuality has no space. They'll tell you that no, but this is what we've been living in. This is how the world works. It's become like, you know, one huge boys club and they are doing completely nothing to change it. If anything, this lockdown, its extension has cemented how influential patriarchy is in our institutions and structure to this date. The needs of um, persons who were already at risk and then that got exacerbated during the lockdown has fallen on deaf ears uh, with those who had the power to maybe change something. The socioeconomic impact will be huge after such an extended lockdown. And since economies globally are already suffering, are there any national strategies to reduce poverty and unemployment? And how do you think this should be dealt with as an issue once the virus subsides? 
Um, I think what's important is to acknowledge the fact that, you know, Botswana has over 30, you know, social protection programs. And I mean, they all each have their own shortcomings. I mean, Success Capital has done a review of some of these and, you know, just trying to figure out and understand, you know, why is it that, you know, despite having, you know, a high, you know, mid middle income country status and, you know, aspirations for high middle income country status and, you know, wanting to, you know, embark on the fourth industrial revolution, you know, towards a knowledge-based economy, all these, you know, beautiful things and, and terms and you know i think you know for me i then you know get back now to asking myself you know the economy wasn't working for everyone in the first place whether globally or just in country and i think you know when we're looking at the modalities in which um you know we do not recognize for instance care work where we do not recognize the gendered disparities in terms of economic participation in terms of political participation i mean i think the litmus test is in political participation and the fact that we have less than five percent representation of women in politics and when i say representation it's also beyond just having someone fill a parliamentary seat, but also ensure that there's certain um, gendered and feminist principles that are being advanced. And that's lacking already, you know, and, and as Bruno alluded, it's because, and we must acknowledge and recognize that patriarchy consistently absolves itself um, in the form of corruption, consistently absolves itself in the form of illicit financial flows and in distracting, you know, as we've mentioned in several, you know, YMD blogs about how, you know, there's, there's always focus and attention on something that is quite irrelevant to the people, you know, that doesn't necessarily translate to, you know, the food that one can eat um, at their tables, if they have tables in the first place. So I think it's really critical for us to then sort of obviously, even when people are speaking about building back better, we must recognize that it's still elitist and that it still talks about, you know, um, the, the high levels of inequality. I mean, the kind, the levels of inequality for Botswana are the same as those for Zambia and Malawi. And it's critical and important for us to recognize that. Um, despite you know the, the transparency international indexes and the afrobarometer we must recognize that, you know the perspectives that people are collecting are those who are educated those who obviously know english those who are included those who have access to internet or who can afford internet um you know relatively compared to securing livelihood and so i think it's very critical for us to then you know recognize that if we're not going to necessarily um you know use more non-normative ways and unconventional ways of inclusion unconventional ways especially with the fact that you know the foundations whether it's the education sector whether it's you know bandwidth infrastructure whether it's you know service industry or whether it's even cultural norms, if these are not invested in and worked on, if we do not, for instance, respect the fact that, you know, our country is a majority of young people, as is reflective of the region, and that there needs to be, you know, as the AU Youth Envoy speaks about, co-leadership, um, co intergenerational co-leadership, it's really critical, you know, so we're finding instances where, you know, policies and programming, and even the institutions are able um, they're patriarchal, you know, they, they exclude so many different groups. Um, and the fact that socioeconomic rights are not justiciable in Botswana is really quite telling 
in spite of the fact that you know, you know, Botswana has signed on to at least five of the nine international instruments um, that are quite critical in terms of universality and indivisibility of human rights. And so we've just seen it, you know, in the way that you know, Botswana has treated prisoners, notably foreign national prisoners who previously, before um, Bonella had uh, litigated, were not rolling out a critical, much uh, life-saving ARV, you know, ARV therapy, which is antiretroviral therapy for um, HIV positive foreign national prisoners. Um, it's quite critical in terms of the displacement and uh, blatant um, uh, uh, removal of indigenous people from the cultural lands in the interest of, you know, economic and or capitalism. So I think, you know, it's already, we're speaking about a system that's already deeply skewed and flawed and um, that isn't inclusive. And I think we have the SDGs, we have um, uh, different instruments, even our own constitution, our own vision 2036, or Africa's agenda, um, 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 uh, uh, Africa's agenda 2053, I mean, so far etched um, with a lack of accountability there. But I mean, these instruments and these policy-making tools are there, speaking about leaving no one behind, speaking about universal health coverage and you know, putting the last mile forward. What that looks like means that we go beyond statistical and quantitative outcomes to qualitative, to addressing the outliers and the you know, intersectional vulnerabilities you know, it's not just, um, you know, recognizing the gender perspective, but also the ableist, also institutional racism, and also the, 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 the lack of youth inclusion, the lack of diversity, you know, so I think, you know, equitable um, uh, designs, equitable monitoring and evaluation and equitable and ethical programming is needed. Um, and, and that starts from the top. If we don't have that from the top, you know, if you don't respect the, own, the regulations that you're imposing on your people, then you're obviously not going to be inclusive. You're not going to build back better. You're not going to have, you know, a, a, an economy that is circular, that can sustain itself. You're not going to have um, equitable and meaningful participation of all these different groups. Um, regardless of what, you know, a national or democratic, you know, uh, um, indicator or outcome you want to achieve. Thank you, Dumi. Uh, Bonola, I'd love to hear your input on this as well. Absolutely. I think the most important thing to realize and acknowledge is that inequalities did exist even prior to COVID-19. And I think the one thing that we've learned from that entire experience is a lot of like strategic and fundamental flaws in how policies are designed and what informs those policies, whether or not they're inclusive or they speak to to narratives that actually matter to the people on the ground. Already, the inequality in Botswana is absolute rate. Um, it only spoke to people that are within the proximity of like resources, so more urbanized areas compared to rural areas. And really at best, if the government was to provide these resources, they would have done that in a way that would trickle down to, you know, poorer communities in more rural areas. And really at best, if the government was to provide these resources, they would have done that in a way that would trickle down to you know, poorer communities in more rural areas. Most of the policies and strategies are already placed in the Botswana government who's not really meeting the needs, particularly of those individuals that live in very, very remote areas. One of the problems with the country right now is lack of documentation and lack of communication. By communication, I'm not just saying put an article in the daily news or put an article on the government website, because that in and of itself is assuming that everyone has access to this information. And the one thing that COVID-19 taught us is that access to information is key. The more you know about what's happening around you, the more you're able 
So falling back to systems that are already like perpetually continue to divorce itself from people that were living in, in remote areas meant that when a disaster similar to COVID-19 struck, they're most likely to be even more vulnerable than they were. The government does have strategies of giving, did have strategies, right, of giving food parcels to the less fortunate. Uh, however, there were a lot of cases where, like, it never really reached the individuals that it was meant to reach. And unfortunately for them, even so, we're speaking about access to, you know, food parcels. We need to be talking about the greater uh, fundamental issues within the system, about access to water and energy. Because the one thing they tell you with COVID-19 is that wash your hands regularly. But if you don't have access to water, and in those rural areas, most of the time, all of them use one stand, stand point. This is where they all, as a village, collectively receive water or draw water from. And with the COVID regulations that the government put in, which stipulated that you cannot socially gather, it meant that accessing that water source was limited in and of itself. So without that water source, without access to clean water, they're already vulnerable and unable to protect themselves from the disease. But moreover, you talk about like just sanitizing in general. And most of those schools in the most remote parts of Tijuana don't even have access to any sort of energy source. So boiling water, having access to like clean uh, utensils was something that was already Limited. So I think that it showed how unprepared our government was, but more fundamentally, I think it showed us how most of the structures and strategic considerations that the government is making really is not considerate of what the people of the planet actually need. We can, to a specific degree, say that the government has done some good. They have been giving out subsidies, particularly in terms of like tax exemptions for businesses in order for them to still be semi-operational even during lockdown. However, this is really counterintuitive when then the government comes back recently during um, the budget speech and speaks about increase in tax and speaks about increase in taxes in sugar, um, the sugar industry, like, you know, sodas and et cetera. But most importantly, like income tax. And you can imagine as somebody who has not been earning in tax for, I mean, earning any income past couple of years for the past couple of years because of COVID, now you're faced with coming into an industry where taxes even more than you originally were. And I think that fundamentally we're looking at these issues from a very isolated point of view. We're almost like sort of deducing problem by problem. But I think it stems from Botswana is fundamentally controlled by a few individuals. These are the individuals that control like you know, the economy, control, like, the market. And when policies are being made, I think most of us take for granted the fact that if you're not a part of that group, you may not necessarily have an ability to contribute to how things will go in the future. I am optimistic that things will get better. I'm optimistic that now a lot of us have, you know, become more resilient to what's happening around us and become more self-independent in terms of like trying to find ways to remain sustainable and afloat. But I think that we can do a lot in terms of learning uh, from other countries that have managed to maneuver through this crisis to actually learn from best, best practices and become even better governments than the world before. New Zealand as a case in point. I do not think that Botswana does not have the capacity financially resource-wise and human capital-wise to make 
the decisions that would make the difference. I just think that we need to be having more honest and frank conversations about what's happening in our country and what needs to be done in the future. And I think that's a conversation that needs to be spearheaded by young people, particularly because what our country has done brilliantly throughout the past decade is to educate a lot of young people. Most of the people who are going to get free education, I think it's, it, the time is now for us to, to sort of change uh, what's happening in our country for the better. Uh, but if one thing I can take away from this pandemic is that it has really unveiled what the true nature of the state of our economy and our country and our social development actually is, is like. Because for a very long time, being one of the only countries in the entire continent that has seemed to be well-functioning, very secure, very democratic, less uh, corrupt, it is giving us this false sense of security that we cannot and should not be improving or giving us this mentality that we're better off because it's worse off somewhere else. But I think it's not a time to be complacent. It's a time to be innovative, to be the, to meet the modern day needs of our country and move away from some of the habits that we had secured from the future that are very detrimental to the development of our country, particularly of those of young people, women, and other marginalized groups. If there's a time to reinvent ourselves for the better, I think that time is out. Thank you both so much for your incredible insight and shedding some light on this topic. And thank you to our listeners who joined us here today. If you want to learn more about Dumi's work, Vanolo's work, or what the network does, please check out our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter with the handle WYMD Network. Have a great day and stay safe out there. Thank you.